there are other Annapurnas in the lives of men. It was the spring of 1950, and a group of elite French climbers set out in the mountainous terrain of north-central Nepal. Up until this point, not one of the 14 8,000-meter peaks in the world had been climbed with a successful descent. With eyes set on glory, a Himalayan peak of 8,167 meters above sea level, the group of climbers and porters from the surrounding villages set out on a reconnaissance mission to determine the best way to scale this mountain. After multiple scouting efforts, it was ultimately determined that Deglari was unclimbable. Left with a real possibility of defeat, they shifted their attention to Annapurna, an 8,091-meter peak found in the 34-mile-long massif by the same name. Yet days were followed by weeks, and the mountain could not be located. Finally, after realizing that the rudimentary maps they had been given were inaccurate, they made their way through huge valleys and gorges over rushing alpine rivers to the face of this unknown mountain. The summer monsoon season was only weeks away, and faced with the unenviable task of attempting to climb an 8,000-meter peak site on the first attempt, which would never happen again, they began their slow assault on this colossal mass of rock, ice, and snow. Over a half century later, this mountain would develop a reputation for having the highest summit-to-death ratio, far greater than its giant cousin to the east, Everest. But in this particular month, these men and their Sherpa comrades slowly established camps up higher on the peak, through the most dangerous climbing conditions that any of these expert climbers had ever encountered. On the morning of June 3rd, Maurice Herzog and Louis Lachanel left Camp 5 at 24,600 feet. The previous night had been spent a brutal winter storm, which threatened to tear apart the tent while burying the men in snow and ice on the edge of a precipice overlooking the vast expanse below. Bone-chilling cold, they set out in deep snow, slowly making their way to the top. As they got closer, and with a risk of frostbite setting in, Lachnall turned to Herzog and asked, What would you do if I go down? Herzog replied, I should go on by myself. In a moment of pure transcendence that he later compared to climbing the ladder of St. Teresa of Avila, both men would reach the summit. Herzog later described this experience as a state of rapture never before experienced in his life, as a, quote, astonishing happiness welled up in me, but I could not define it. As fully detailed in the eponymously titled book Annapurna, which later became the best-selling mountaineering book of all time, Herzog and Lachanel would become the first human beings to summit an 8,000-meter peak and live to tell about it. Yet as quickly as they ascended to heavenly heights, hell would ensue in what became one of the most famous survival stories of all time. By the time weeks and months had passed, through numerous amputations and the constant threat of death, Herzog would eventually tell the story of what happened during those fateful days, the excruciating trek out of the mountains, and the return to civilization. As the book draws to a close, Herzog anxiously anticipates the return to his homeland, both in triumph for what they had accomplished and in horror for what his body had become. Yet in the final lines, despite the enormous price paid for the summit, he reflects on just what the mountain meant to him. Annapurna, to which we had gone empty-handed, was a treasure on which we should live the rest of our days. With this realization, we turn the page, 
a new life begins. There are other Annapurnas in the lives of men. Welcome back to Living a Whole Christian Life. It's Dr. Jim Schrader, and I'm recounting the story of the incredible summit of the first 8,000-meter peak ever in the history of the world. As I mentioned last week, I had uh, spent a lot of time out in my viney, weedy, nasty mess, climbing my own summit. Of course, nothing like the summit you just heard about here. But as I was doing that over the course of days and weeks, I was inspired by the story in so many ways. I'm thinking about what these men had endured, not only in climbing and peaking the mountain, but for the rest of their lives, what they would endure through all the hardships that came and the price that they had paid. So as you hear this story, and I, I assume that most of you probably have actually not heard the story before, we ask ourselves about kind of what is our reaction to stories like this? And I think that, you know, there's often three different types of reactions that we have. The first is a sense of, again, I kind of mentioned inspiration. We're inspired by how, you know, people just forge through and work through some of the most amazing and difficult challenges in their lives, things that we might not be able to imagine in our own lives. And so we're inspired by not just the story, but sometimes how it relates to our own life. Um, in, my, in my case, of course, it was the viney, nasty mess outside of our house. The second, though, is that sometimes I think there's a sense of indifference. You know, we hear stories like this, we recognize what it is, but, you know, we might say to ourselves, mountaineers, they have nothing to do with my life, right? They're, these people are very different. They have different goals, different, you know, expectations. My life and their life couldn't be further apart. And the third, I think, reaction sometimes we have is maybe of indignance. In some ways, you might say to yourself, and you might be one of these listening, you might think, they're just insane. Like, why risk everything for this? I mean, is it their own self-glorification? You know, what's going on? I, I can't imagine they probably had families back home. There were probably lots of other more important things they could have been doing than trying to summit the 8,000-meter peak. But, you know, regardless of our reaction— I would actually argue that there's a fourth option that's probably the most formative one. And as we're sitting here talking about challenges today, the reality is that we'll never have a life devoid of challenges. And in fact, I don't care how you know indulged or how lucky you are, at some point and in various points, and often many points in our life, challenge is just simply part of living. So I would argue that whether you're inspired or indifferent or indignant when you hear a story like I just said earlier, Probably the best option, I think, really, if we're going to learn from all of those around us, is actually one of inquisitiveness, right? So I noticed that I noted prior in a uh, earlier podcast that curiosity is the antidote to pride, right? It's actually the companion of humility. But I would also argue it's the key to understanding how we can learn from others as they encounter their own challenges. And that's often the key, you know, whether or not we think that, oh, the lives of a mountaineer has anything to do with us or, you know, whatever particular kind of challenge people take on. The reality is that we're all part of that same human fabric. And I would argue throughout the Bible that look at how many stories in the Old and New Testament are used to teach us something about our lives today. Even as different as the civilizations or lack thereof may have been, even as different as the plight of those individuals may have seemed on the surface, so often. Lines from the Bible and stories from the Bible teach us about how to embrace or at least accept the challenges that we have today. Because the reality is, is the opposite of being inquisitive is being self-absorbed. And, we, you know, we mentioned before that self-absorption, although it's something that we all feel at times, and I think it's part of the natural human experience, 
The problem is if we remain there, it tends to bury us when faced with challenges. We can only see what's going wrong and how we're alone and, you know, and everything that um, we can't do to get ourselves out of it. And so it's the opposite of being inquisitive. You know, again, there's, there's nothing wrong with feeling just kind of despair or hopelessness because that's something that we're going to all feel. But the question is, if life is a challenge and it's one adventure, one large grand adventure full of many different challenges, what's our perspective towards the challenges that we face? One of the people that I've come to know and, and appreciate the most, and I'll talk much later about some of the running and different things I've done, is a person by the name of Giannis Curis. And again, probably many of you out there um, don't know who he is, but he's considered by many to be the great, greatest ultra runner of all time, hailing from Greek, you know, from the Greek country. He was a man who once ran 188 miles in 24 hours and over 660 miles in six days. Now, again, hearing that, you might think he's insane. He's lost his mind. And, and, you know, there's a definite argument for that. Or you might just feel a sense of indifference or you might feel inspired by that. But the reality is this is a human being, a real human being. He's not a god. He still actually lives today, as far as I know. And I had a friend that actually ran with him years ago. And he said something once that has really stuck with me. And I'm going to repeat it here. He said, quote, each horrid event should equip you with the necessary provisions so that you can confront the next one. It shouldn't make you yield. The continuous confirmation is that despair and hopelessness supply you with means, inconceivable at first, and they make you discover hidden unexpected powers. Later, an unhoped for tranquility and sobriety should follow so that you can pursue your goals with precision. So when you hear that, it's interesting. What are those unexpected hidden powers? Where do they come through? You know, I talked before the idea of the unhealthy pride says, well, it's all me and I've, I'm pulling myself on my bootstraps and I'm, you know, finding my way through alone. And the reality, of course, we know is that we're never alone. Often those powers come through other people. They come through insights that we may have learned. Again, whether it was, you know, Mar- Maurice Herzog and Annapurna or wherever it is, you know, those unexpected insights and moments of peace come in our connections with people. But of course, they also come through the grace of God and through the gifts that we've been given in our bodies and our minds and just the mysteriousness by which it brings, not only through the spirit that exists in us, but as God outside of us brings to us, we have no idea where these means come. But it's a beautiful line to think about someone who's running for days, considering he used to have these experiences from time to time where he literally felt as though he could see himself running above his body. And it would go on at times, even not just minutes, but even hours. And when it happened, he would just kind of describe a sense of wanting to stay away from everyone until it was over. You know, it was almost a true out-of-body experience there. So here we are. And I, I don't know if, if sure I'm like a lot of people. I There's many times I've asked God, why does life have to have so many challenges, right? And I've been really, really fortunate to not have anywhere near the challenges that many of you listening have had. But I'm sure most of you ask that question. You know, we talk about why suffering, but I I don't even, before we ever get to suffering, why does life have to be so challenging? Why wasn't life ordained in a way that could be relatively enjoyable most of the time or all the time um, before we leave this world? And this is where I believe, you know, all the way back to the very early stories of the Bible, the earliest stories you can think of in Genesis and beyond, that there is a sacred world that lives within challenge. 
that there's a sacredness that we find in our moments sometimes of greatest trial and our moments of uncertainty that we can't find in their moments of just kind of pure bliss and joy and happiness. There's an interesting piece of research around this too. When we write about the moments that we're happy about, um, that we've had that have been really good for us, there's not a whole lot that we realize that we have to gain from that. We just want more of being happy. But when we write about difficult moments, you know, whether we're journaling and we're writing about things that have happened to us that have been real trials, over and over and over, people report moments of insight, moments of clarity, moments of peace, and not just when you're writing, but during the actual event itself, in which we learn something about ourselves that much deeper, and we learn in ways that we probably couldn't learn and form ourselves if life was just easy most of the time. But even said that, I understand, you know, we struggle with this idea of why must challenge be ordained in life? Wasn't there an easy way or to gain this insight? It's been um, just Easter week, just a week or so before, and we think back to that moment of the passion of Christ that we so often come back to. And I wonder sometimes, is life ordained with challenge not only because we gain formation and insight about who we are, but that we also gain at least a brief glimpse of who Jesus must have been in that moment of humanity as he was going through the passion and his death in such a horrible way. I don't think we'll ever know. And I think sometimes, although there's nothing wrong with wondering about why challenge or why suffering exists, I think that sometimes we probably owe it to ourselves just to say, it does. And I don't know why, but I don't think that life will ever exist without it. And so if life never will exist without it, the bigger question comes back to what can we own? What can we do with those challenges? I love the end of Herzog's statement that despite everything he lost in that mountain, he lived the rest of his days with a sense of kind of meaning and sacredness, even though he took upwards of year plus to even begin to truly recover from the injuries. And of course, he never recovered from the amputations. But, you know, later, even throughout later in life, he would describe that that sense of utter ecstasy, the sense of utter accomplishment within God, that climbing of St. Teresa Avila's ladder, he never lost that. He never lost that connection to our Lord and I think to others. So as we reflect on all this, you have to begin to think, okay, if challenge is ordained as part of our lives, then what's Jesus' message have to say about this in the New Testament. And here's what happens. Over and over and over, we hear it. First, in James chapter 1, verses 2 and 4, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8-9. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. The letter of the Philippians, chapter 4, verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. It appears there's no faith without challenge. This is Jim Schrader. Be holy, be whole.